For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The governor vetoes the budget passed by lawmakers, but before the ink could even dry from Stitt's veto pen, the Senate and House managed to pull together enough votes to override the veto. Neva, this all went down within a couple hours Wednesday. What did you think about this? Well, I think I think what we see is what has gone on through really most of this legislative session with this uh, bad chemistry and um, a very difficult uh, communication flow between the governor's office and lawmakers. And when these legislators were writing the budget, I mean, the governor's position has been that they've been cut out of the budget process. It's the legislator's uh, position that it was the governor's budget secretary, Mike Macy, who walked out, walked away really in March from budget negotiations. So uh, this lack of communication and often miscommunication really set it up for uh, what what's occurred this week. And I think the, the legislature worked very hard to come up with a budget that was workable in light of where we are today. And I think that they were uh, absolutely adamant that they were going to they were going to see this process through and that the governor's objections Frankly, they 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 uh, used uh, the terms both both the leaders of the House and the Senate that uh, the vetoes were unnecessary, unacceptable. Uh, they talked about the governor's false rhetoric about the bill's effect, and so I think we see very much in in that tone and uh, explanation of where lawmakers were and the actions that they ultimately took to override the governor's vetoes. Uh, Ryan, uh, many video, uh, many Democrats came out and said, I voted against this uh, to start with, but I will vote for it now. Why did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that Democrats were put in, a, in an impossible situation um, where if they did not vote to override the governor's veto, then they were in effect robbing hundreds of millions of dollars from education appropriations that were included in the legislative backed budget. And I mean, I, I don't think that <clears throat> the Democrats that did vote for the veto override, I don't think they did it with a lot of pleasure. Uh, they, they really saw an opportunity to pass a budget that made minimal cuts, that held education harmless for the most part. And, um, you know, the option they didn't really have, because I think if you're, if you're a Democrat, you're still recognizing that services are still, you know, very much underfunded. That we have a structural budget deficit. Um, you know, those those are all things that I think a lot of Democrats looked. At. And some Democrats, not all Democrats, voted for all of the the overrides. I, I visited with Senator Julia Kurt this morning, and one of the things that she said was that it doesn't address possible changes that we need to undertake for the recovery. And so she voted against one of the override bills or a couple of the override vetoes yesterday in the state Senate. So it was a it was a tough spot for. For Democrats, I mean, I think that the <clears throat> the real takeaway is what to underscore what Neva was saying is that the acrimony between the legislature and the governor's office is just totally unambiguous right now. I mean, they are uh, at at all out disfavor with one another. Um, and reading some, I think it was you know Sean Ashley on on Twitter this morning uh, saying that he had never seen four veto overrides in a single day. Um, and we saw that yesterday and, and they were all successful. I mean, that, that's that's a pretty incredible situation uh, you know, to see the legislature just dunk on the governor like that. And um, you know, welcome to politics, Governor Stitt. I think that he, he walked in with a, with an idea of politics, not as usual. I'm not going to play these games. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, this is it's not a game. It's that's the interplay between uh, you know two branches of government 
and it's not easy. And if you think that you can just change the rules after they've been in place for ever, uh, you know, think again. Neva, where does the Republican think, Party go from I here? I think that's exactly right, Ryan. I mean, I think I think the fact that the governor continued to try to to position himself with these public statements that basically made it that he was making a stand, he was going to be the hero for education, he was going to be the one that was uh, taking uh, care of uh, the interests of the four million Oklahomans that he always refers to. Uh, I think I think that really didn't carry any water, and I think what the what the the lawmakers did was say, look, it's our responsibility to come up with a budget that's workable, uh, get it done in the time prescribed fashion and uh, work hard to do that with all of the competing interests that are always uh, at play at the end. And I think uh, talking about education and then seeing what the, the governor, you know, the governor's uh, intent would have been was not uh, not anything but catastrophic in the view of most of the educators that were watching it and commenting on it, the, a 12 percent cut, uh, unsustainable. And so um, I think I think this is the difficulty that we saw in uh, in this process. And it will be interesting to see now as they finish up quickly the additional bills that are on the table, whether we see more vetoes and more possible overrides. Uh, governor, well, I think oh, governor, well, I gonna, just Fine, real yeah. quick, if, if you're the governor in the situation like this, and I, I do think I want to say that. Um, I don't think the governor played his hand well at all in this, which is unsurprising. He's not played a, a good hand on, on a lot of fronts uh, this year. But um, I do think that the governor makes a solid point in saying that when we are looking at a, the, the use of a bunch of one-time funds, um, you know, what's going to happen to next year's budget? And in the context of, you know, what it is that we have to work with, we have to work with a legislature and a governor that's not willing to raise revenues uh, you know, right now or really ever. Uh, but especially right now, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, and I think if you're the, the governor and you're going to you know, rely on that point, though, it's really incumbent upon you to put an alternative out there. And they just the governor's office just didn't do that. And so the legislature had to do what they had to do. Well, and, 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 and let's also be clear. I mean, the governor, he made the point. I mean, one of his statements uh, issued uh, said basically to the effect that uh, uh, he referred to the misguided policies that conservative Republicans had spent decades reversing. I mean, he really, he really was, uh, you know, kind of escalating the fight uh, with much of the much of the rhetoric. Even so much as to say what would happen potentially next session with them coming uh, back to the legislature and looking at possible uh, tax increases, which no one has ever put that on the table or talked about this session, nor is there any uh, uh, any real prospect of that being part of the conversation probably in the, in the next session or sessions to come. So I think, again, these are words that come back to haunt you uh, in uh, not only in the heat of the moment, but in the long term as he uh, finishes out this legislative session with them, but as we look toward next year as well. I'm going to take us a, a year out even more. May 2020 uh, is the beginning of the 2022 gubernatorial primary. That's that's what this mm -hmm. is. We're we're going to see an incumbent Republican governor with a serious challenger in 2022, unless something you know momentous changes between now and then. Governor Sitt did form a bipartisan group to distribute federal relief. The 23 lawmakers will help with 1.2 billion dollars in CARES funds. The appointment, though, does come after legislative leaders criticized it for not including them in discussion over the money. Ryan, what was the major complaint among these elected officials? I think that they you know, felt left out of the process of, of the decision making process. They'd seen you know, investigations into the way the money was being spent. 
Um, they were being asked to uh, extend the governor's emergency powers. So, I mean, the CARES Act funding, you know, really, you know, gives the discretion to the the executive in a state. You know, so the governor and uh, the legislative's role, the legislature's role, and that's pretty limited. But the legislature has some strings to pull on other things, like the the extension of emergency powers. Uh, you know, we saw some of that play out over the the budget fight that we've you know seen unfold over the last several days. Um, so I think that this is really a, a gesture by the governor. We'll see how uh, real of a gesture it is. I, I don't think that it gets <laughs> it doesn't get to the decision making authority level that most legislative leaders want to see it at. And I also think that when we when we call it bipartisan, there are 22, 23 members of the advisory group. I counted three Democrats out of that. Uh, you know, so you and there's some good Democrats on there, but uh, you know, three out of 20 something doesn't seem to be all that bipartisan to me. So we'll see how this unfolds and what what kind of real input they actually have or whether this is a uh, you know a cover your butt committee so that you know if something goes wrong, you can say, well, it wasn't just me. It was this bipartisan committee that worked with me on it. Yeah, and it did, uh, Neva did seem a little bit more of an advisory group rather than any kind of actually controlling over what's going on. Well, the, it is an advisory group, um, and the governor has said that he's putting in place the framework for uh, not only, I guess, the group to function and uh, to meet, but also the tracking and reporting system uh, for the uh, CARES Act reimbursements, which is going to be something everyone's going to be very interested in and want to see transparency about. But I think, uh, I think in in the uh, announcement of the of the advisory group, I think it was important to note what uh, Senator Treat said in that he believes it is the legislature that has the responsibility to oversee how taxpayer dollars are spent and went so far as to say that uh, even though this is in place, this committee, this advisory group, it doesn't preclude the legislature from taking any steps that it deems necessary to track the use of the uh, federal relief dollars or uh, or anything beyond that. So I think I think this is going to uh, be an interesting process to watch. I mean, uh, these are monies that uh, will have taken place between March 1st and December 30th. So it'll go through the end of the year related to uh, the COVID-19 uh, emergency. Um, and it will be it will be very, uh, very important, I think, from, uh, as you say, Ryan, as we begin to think before we even get through a 2020 election, people are already beginning to think 22 and and all of the races that will be uh, on the ballot. Then uh, these are the kind of groups that uh, um, whatever the composition uh, will have a lot of interest. And certainly, I think we'll have the governor sometimes on the hot seat, potentially with having to respond and giving information. It's my understanding that the legislature gave him 48 hours uh, uh, last week when they when they extended the 30 days uh, uh, for him and that um, some lawmakers have said that they've not seen that information yeah. yet. So, again, communication is going to be very, very critical if they're going to get past some of this uh, some of this uh, kind of toxic uh, water that they're in right now trying to uh, trying to move forward. A time is running out for Interim Health Commissioner Gary Cox. Cox has until the end of the legislative session to get confirmation to lead the state health department. But there doesn't appear to be any appetite in the Senate to follow through with advancing Governor Stitt's nominee. Neva, what are the issues with Cox? 
Well, I, I think it's several. I mean, uh, I think uh, what we saw with uh, Senator McCourtney saying uh, at, at the beginning of the week that the votes just weren't there, that he wasn't going to, uh, the nomination wasn't going to be moved. I mean, it's really, let's think back. It's been, it's been a problem from the very beginning. I mean, the governor, he, he appointed, uh, uh, he appointed uh, Gary Cox back in September. Uh, he took uh, his first day at the job was September 13th. Um, and it was even at that time, it was known that there were issues with him not meeting the statutory requirements for uh, serving in that, pos in that position. I think the governor thought that probably that could be worked through, uh, that the uh, uh, legislative uh, process could, could handle that. That kind of went off the rails. And then in, and in the process, uh, 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 the uh, interim, you know, the interim official had a lot of other problems. He had bad headlines, you know, back in April. I mean, people forget, but he had the headlines about the uh, buying the SUV and the mm -hmm. office furnishings and a lot of things that kind of hit the, uh, you know, hit the press. Then he had employees that clearly uh, were disgruntled with the fact that uh, when uh, when state employees pretty much across the board were being uh, uh were being uh, asked to work from home. He was ordering his uh, agency workers to report to their offices every day. Uh, at the same time, they were encouraging the public to, to stay at home, shelter in. So there, there's been a lot of fodder. And, and, and when the piling on starts, you go all the way back. I mean, we've heard the, the, uh, about the 2013 state audit uh, when he was head of the Oklahoma City uh, County Health Department that uh, found blatant favoritism, as they called it, and there was poor morale and 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 196 instances of embezzlement. So, you know, he he's he's had a lot of problems. They compounded themselves, and now, I mean, in the midst of this pandemic, uh, regrettably, we've got a situation where the legislature um, did not did not move on this nomination, and the governor doesn't have anyone waiting in the wings. He says he'll basically have to start this interview process over. So nothing good about the the situation in terms of uh, having someone at the helm at the health department for the state of Oklahoma. And hopefully this uh, this gets corrected in a fairly uh, a, a fairly quick fashion. But I wouldn't expect that based on how slow that process has gone in the past. Ryan. Yeah, interim Commissioner Cox, for every reason that Neva just said, wasn't an easy confirmation to begin with. I mean, he had, uh, and the longer the confirmation goes on, uh, the longer back into his resume, you know, the legislators began to dig, journalists began to dig, stories were coming out. You know, the, the audit that, that Neva talks about that uh, demonstrates uh, a lack of morale uh, and, uh, and some embezzlement, and whether he's culpable in any of that. I mean, it just... The headlines make it harder to move the confirmation, and so you've got you've got a difficult confirmation to begin with. Uh, you've got statutory barriers in front of that confirmation, not just the publicity, but the statutory barrier that says you have to have an advanced degree in public health to serve in this uh, role as commissioner, and he doesn't have that. He's an attorney now. All of those things are not insurmountable in and of themselves. And we, we've seen other agency heads that you know, didn't meet the statutory requ uh, qualifications, but the legislature made exceptions. The governor used some of his goodwill during the last legislative session to get that done. Um, you know, bad publicity doesn't necessarily you know, tank or torpedo a, uh, uh, a nomination uh, or a confirmation. Um, but here, when we, when we look at this in the context of the current legislative session, you know, what we're dealing with here is, uh, you know, some of this was just on his own uh, with, you know, things, you know, that have happened while he's been commissioner, uh, you know, whether he should have had folks coming to work, 
uh, you know, bad morale, all of those things. Um, but some of it's just collateral damage between the fight between the governor and the legislature. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're the governor and you've got a difficult confirmation process for for one of your nominees, you've got to run a really skilled uh, playbook to get that person past the finish line. And the governor's office just doesn't have that capacity right now within the legislature. Um, you know, that's, that's just missing. That's, that's, a, that's, that's missing in the governor's toolbox right now. He can't move something like that. So when you put all of the obstacles between Commissioner Cox or interim Commissioner Cox and, and, and confirmation by the Senate, it's, it's really not a surprise right now uh, that he's all but submitted his resignation and said that he doesn't anticipate being confirmed and we've got a vacancy in that office and we'll, we'll kind of see what happens, which seems to be the, the theme of the, the state administration right now is we'll see what happens. Neva, well, did- and I think, you know, it's, it, it is important also to know when we're talking about kind of the whole kind of the whole series of events that the end of April, Attorney General Hunter uh, asked the state auditor and inspector to conduct an investigative mm-hmm. audit at the State Department of Health. So that is infused into these last weeks of the discussion. And you're right, Ryan, if you want to navigate and you want to get someone through that you're pick to be one of these top level appointees in your administration, you have to work with legislative leaders to make that happen. Because at the end of the day, they still have the final say on whether or not they're going to have a hearing, whether the confirmation process is going to move forward. And I think um, uh, while the governor uh, liked to uh, refer to um, uh, director, the interim director as a disruptor. And he kind of uh, uh, took the position that uh, the disgruntled employees at the Department of Health, you know, were, you know, were um, uh, folks that didn't like what was happening, didn't like his style, didn't like uh, the accountability that uh, he said that uh, um, that uh, Cox was putting in place. I mean, all of those, all of those things, as you say, all converged together and came up with a, you know, a, a bad ending all the way around because on May 31st, uh, uh, the state of Oklahoma will will uh, we'll see who is going to be the next interim um, and uh, how that process moves forward because they'll be in that position in all likelihood uh, uh, through the rest of this year and into the first part of the next session and we'll see whether that confirmation um, you know becomes a reality. So again, I think while the public doesn't pay a lot of attention, I think the the aftermath of this uh, and the unintended consequences on uh, future decisions and future appointments uh, that are moved through the process may have huge implications. And that's, this is all just one year after we uh, saw the legislature grant a lot of these new powers to the executive. And a big question whenever they were doing that, when they were giving the, the governor almost carte blanche uh, power to appoint many of these agency heads, there is a real question as to what kind of oversight was going to be exercised by the legislative branch to retain some of their institutional power and our separation of powers in Oklahoma. We're seeing that exercised right now. The governor signs legislation reinstating notarization requirements for absentee ballots. During emergencies like the current COVID-19 crisis, voters can forego the notary and send photocopies of their IDs as proof of who they are. Ryan, do you think anyone is going to challenge this new law? You know, I think that the the biggest challenge to the new law are going to be uh, renewed efforts uh, on part of, of campaigns and organizations um, to try to get people to exercise the absentee ballot requirement as burdensome as it remains uh, under the new law. You know, the the legislature and the governor moved with warp speed 
to undo the a Supreme Court opinion that was dropped last Monday. So, you know, the Supreme Court's order on Monday, very unambiguous, <clears throat> very clear, says that the that absentee ballot voters in Oklahoma had for 18 years, although it hadn't been enforced, had for 18 years been able to submit uh, absentee ballots without having to go through the notary, notary process. And uh, the, so, uh, you know, now that that right had been recognized and the Supreme Court was ready to enforce it with the election board, legislature by Wednesday and the House passes legislation, Thursday the Senate passes it, and Thursday afternoon the governor signs it. I, I can't, in, in my time at the Capitol uh, and, and asking other folks that have been out there even longer than I have, nobody can remember a time when a Supreme Court's opinion uh, was just, you know, uh, completely erased uh, by an act of the legislature and the governor that quickly. Neva. Well, it had to be quickly. I mean, we're talking about we're six weeks away from a primary election uh, and the state election board clearly uh, needed the guidance and the, and the final decisions in place to move forward. So this notion that the uh, that that there weren't uh, these alternatives put in place uh, as a result of uh, COVID-19 uh, the uh, that were basically stated that in lieu of the notarization an absentee could, you know, have a attach a copy of their driver's license or, you know, let's take that argument away of whether or not it's going to cost them a dime or whether or not they've got a cop copier at home or whatever. Uh, they could put their voter registration card in that in in that envelope and mail it and then just ask for another voter registration card. I mean, there are so many ways to deal with this. It is not a laborious process, but it's also a process that not a high percentage of voters uh, uh, use as one of their options. They prefer to go to the polls in person. Uh, and I think, uh, as we know, primary voting uh, in Oklahoma historically has been much, much lower uh, than in general elections. And general elections, uh, uh, only in presidential years, do we see a really uh, a halfway decent uh, percentage of Oklahomans going to the polls. So those are always, in my mind, the bigger uh, challenges to be addressed and look, looked at, as opposed to the absentee ballot process, which for those who choose to take advantage of, I believe it is very clear and a process that they can easily navigate through and accomplish. But Russell Ryan, do you, do you think that someone's going to actually challenge this? Is it, is it challengeable? I mean, I, it's it's um, you know what the legislature did was a statutory change, and so the you know when the court recognized the court didn't ground its decision in a, in a constitutional right, matter. This wasn't it was uh, not about First it, Amendment yeah, or anything like that. They they were they were interpreting a state statute that was you know, very clear and hadn't been enforced for eighteen years. Had been on the books since two thousand and two, and so when when the I mean it's you know most of the time, and there are some guardrails there, but most of the time the legislature and, and the governor have the prerogative to change state statute uh, with uh, with with their, within their own discretion. And the check on that is a political check. if you if you don't like what these legislators have done in you know making taking away a very simple, efficient, secure option to be able to cast absentee ballots, which you know that should you know mail-in ballots should be, uh, we should make that process easier in all elections, but especially right now in the midst of a of a pandemic. And I know that a lot's been made of the fact that when you show up to vote, you've got to present an ID. Uh, and so we've got a voter ID law in Oklahoma. I don't agree with it, but we've got it. So why shouldn't you have to present an ID when you present your notary ballot? Well, when you vote in person, if you don't have uh, your ID, you're able to cast a provisional ballot and you're able to sign and affirm that in the same manner that the Supreme Court was going to allow voters to do with their absentee ballots. So um, you know, to me, we're, we're already doing that. We're already self-affirming ballots without IDs. 
with provisional ballots that count the same as your regular ballot. The Oklahoma Indian Gaming Association ousts two of its members. The Oto Missouri Tribe and the Comanche Nation were suspended after they entered into gaming compacts with the governor. Neva, are you surprised by this decision? I don't know that I'm surprised. I do, uh, I, I do see what uh, the uh, OIGA chairman, Matt Morgan, said when he made the comment that it was a tough but necessary decision. And it, and it really came down to what he said. It came down to a matter of trust. And if you have, uh, if you have meetings, if you have conversations uh, ongoing uh, as an association and you have members that clearly uh, have made a different deal or at all, in, a, in another place, uh, that puts that puts everything in a very difficult spot. So I think in the best interest of their association as a whole, they saw the need for the emergency meeting. They saw the need to uh, uh, to amend their bylaws uh, to allow for these suspensions. I think they gave it a uh, a one or two year uh, uh, time frame to where they could uh, revisit it. So um, again, this is uh, this is kind of inside a group and what they need to do to kind of deal with their own situation. But the impact, I mean, when the governor entered into an agreement with two tribes uh, um, and uh, they believe that the, that it's legal, the attorney general has uh, said uh, very forcefully he does not believe what has happened is legal. Then we've got uh, we've got a very as we talked about this ongoing situation and when will it be resolved uh, this year with respect to uh, uh, to the uh, gaming compacts and the state of Oklahoma. Ryan, meanwhile, the tribes are saying we're, we're, we're sovereign nations. You can't just kick us out of your group just because we've decided to make a decision on our own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that I understand where the OIGA is coming from. I mean, I, I agree with Neva. I mean, I'm sure that it wasn't an easy decision uh, on, on, beh- uh, on behalf of the organization to remove two of its members. But when you think about, you know, what all of uh, the uh, over two dozen sovereign nations in the state of Oklahoma have said all along with their with their political and their legal strategy here is that there's strength and unity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are all independent sovereign nations, but they are they've been unified uh, in the position that the compacts automatically renewed and that the governor doesn't have the authority to renegotiate new compacts, especially ones that are outside of state law. And, you know, that's you know, you've got the attorney general and the overwhelming majority of the sovereign nations, uh, tribal nations in Oklahoma lined up on one side and two tribal nations and the governor on the other. Uh, I, I think that, you know, what what the governor tried to do, um, you know, by negotiating these separate contacts, uh, uh, compacts um, was was really a PR stunt. I, I don't think that it has a legal foundation to it. I don't think that there's a strong policy foundation to it. I think that it was meant to demonstrate that the governor was willing to work with tribes uh, if they came to the table um, on his terms. And you know, I, I think that it, it backfired. I think that it's created a, a new legal front for the governor to, to fight on. And I think he's going to lose. Um, and I think that the, the two nations that stepped outside of the, uh, the otherwise you know, strength and unity uh, 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 position of the majority of the state's tribal governments I think that they're probably on the outs too, um, you know, in, in making that decision. It was, I, I know that we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, gambling uh, compacts here. I said, but it was a ga- it was a gamble, yeah, it was a gamble uh, yes. and it was a, it was a, a high stakes risk ga- gamble. That's right, a high risk gamble, and I don't think it's going to pay off for anybody on the governor's side. It can pay off not only now, but maybe also when you're looking at a primary race in in 2022 and a general election. Again, I you know I we said up earlier. I think that we can look. We'll look back, and if it didn't start before now. Uh, 
it, it definitely started in May of 2020, the, the, the gubernatorial primary, Republican primary to succeed uh, Governor Stitt. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that he's down and out and, and you know, won't get reelected, but uh, I, I think that he has uh, all but guaranteed himself a competitive race uh, in you know, June of 2022. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.